are back. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And I suppose we should have said this early on, but I always assume our audience knows this. And you I'm, always say it just like this when you yeah, remember later on to say it. Because, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Because I'm like, I think you're smarter than this. But here we go anyways. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and the guests and not the radio station. So if you don't like what we're saying, send it to the three of us, not WVEW. Let's talk a little bit about um, the European influences around speech creeping into the U.S. Because I'm seeing more and more of this. Uh, as a member of the press. And yesterday, Emily and I attended a meeting just with our different hats on. We sat at tables very far away from each other, so no one would know we liked each other. No. We didn't even make eye contact, so nobody would know. (laughs) We did send texts, though, but that's another story. Um, (laughs) Mainly because I'm like, what? Um, So they opened the meeting. It was a meeting of um, employers and some folks from the state and some folks who were contracted, independent contractors who were contracted on behalf of the state to turn in a state report or a report to the state. And then a bunch of social service professionals. Yes, they came in the afternoon. So they opened up the meeting and they said, okay, we're going to operate with something called, hope I say this right, Chatham House Rules, which is basically, if I understand it, it comes from the UK. And it's a rule that says you can say what you learned in the meeting to other people and you can talk about what you learned but you can't say who said it and you can't attribute like either their business or the person to having said these things and um i quickly kind of put up my hand and said i i'm not sure that this is kosher under vermont right to know laws because you're working on behalf of the state um but there was kind of a little back and forth they're like yeah but we want people to feel free to speak and Emily brought up the really great point. She said, yeah, well, I but was there, there are members of press in the room. So, you know, you're talking in front of the press anyways, but now they think they're not. And when I was there in the afternoon, um, there was a much sort of quicker overview of that because I think it really was designed more for the business folks yeah. than it was for the social service people. I'm not sure why. But um, it was gone over very quickly as if these are just sort of the group norms we were going to operate mm-hmm. with. And most social service line staff don't have any idea who the, you know, who their reporters are in their community. And we had someone down from Vermont Digger there who I don't know if I've ever seen her in Brattleboro before. Mm-mm. And so there was no way for people who are just, you know, as a politician, I have become more adept at spotting the media places. And I generally don't say anything out loud that I wouldn't ha- be happy to have spread all to creation but that's general that's a good rule in general i think that, that's just how i live my life though and has nothing to do with me being a politician it's more about living in a small town and knowing what that means mm-hmm. um everything's a street corner i realized that a lot of the social service folks in that room might want to feel and might want to and should feel comfortable critiquing the organizations that they come from but not realizing that that might be reported out of the mm-hmm. room because they wouldn't know those reporters were there yeah. and then they'd just been told that it's a safe place to do those things and what's really fascinating is when I asked the folks who were kind of putting out these rules you know what about the Vermont right to know law did you think of this that da, da, da. their intent was good they wanted they were they actually thought they were supporting free speech um, but they kind of weren't. 
Um, but the part that really concerned me was, as Emily described it, that these were being put out as norms mm. of how we do our daily business in public discourse in America. And I thought, mm, that's a nasty precedent. In fact, I called one mentor and, and he said, do not let that catch on because that's a mess. I don't know. Are, are we crazy? <laughs> no. I mean, this is the piece about uh, at the beginning of the show where you're talking about doing the people's business. But if you're a state legislature, you're speaking about things and, and you're doing it in public and you should have a lot of freedom to own your words and make a dissenting or voice a dissenting opinion. And what we're seeing, and I think um, Emily used the word privatization earlier, that, that this idea that there is no public space, which means you're standing there as a member of the public, saying something and not being held so much account for it that you can't be asked a question and then provide a response or even reconsider or th change your point of view. Public discourse it should be uh, the sort of place where you risk voicing your opinion, you risk saying something that people in power may not like or your good friend may not like, and yet there's still this ability to stay with the discussion enough that we get to something called a truer understanding. But if we're starting to use, and this is, you know, starting in college campuses, this idea of safe space, and then it bleeds out, um, it's completely changing with the notion of what public discourse is. And that's one of the things I'm probably most concerned about in this country is the rights we're willing to give up because we actually don't want public discourse. These are rights to help us be in public and be courageous together and learn from each other and change our minds and being able to own your mistakes or changing our minds. And it's getting into something else. It's, and it's funny because I completely agree with you. And as someone who's worked at a number of social service agencies, I can very much understand this fear of speaking publicly mm -hmm. because there might be whistleblower rules, but anything below that, mm -hmm. um, whether that's in state government or as a contractor, given how tenuous people's attachment to the economy and to stability is at this point in our communities, you don't want to do anything to risk your job. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we say and do in public now is considered sort of a part of our work. Yeah, free, free game. Free game. You know, we do Facebook searches on people when we're doing hiring, and that's considered legal in most mm -hmm. states. Um, I know that, you know, my work at Youth Services is constantly being mixed up with my work in the legislature, no matter how hard I try to clarify that everywhere I go. It's a really, yeah. it's an, it's a very troubling mix yeah. that we're in. Do you have any suggestions then for somebody who is, who was, or are you still working at Youth Services? I am still working at Youth yeah, Services. So yeah, so have, you have a deep understanding of what it's like to be an employee there mm -hmm. and not wanting to be on public record in, in a certain way. Like, what might be possible to get these ideas out? Because we really want the ideas and the opinions we out. We do. Mm -hmm. And not put somebody's job at risk. Well, I would, I would add to that even because we were... We, I think we often go to censorship, whether it's self-censorship or group censorship, to either protect people or to protect ourselves. But maybe the question needs to be, how do we make public discourse available to people who even might have something uncomfortable to say or who traditionally have been left out of the conversation? Because it wouldn't be 
I'm one of the reasons I ran for office is because I'm often the person in the room who says something that no one else will say. And so I, um, for a wide variety of reasons, um, the fact that I am in a partnered relationship and so have less financial risk being one of them, feel free to say those things. But the more people who say the things, the less risky it becomes. And so with this sort of veil of secrecy, we actually have no ability to change our broken systems mm -hmm. because no one's willing to say out loud the system is broken or this thing needs to change, or this is not working for people on the ground because they risk loss of contracting. So there are a lot of ways that even contracts could be reconfigured in state relationships mm -hmm. to allow for a much more collaborative yeah. verbal relationship, right. problem-solving right. relationship. And, and unfair termination suits can be rather profitable, oh. and no employer really wants an unfair termination. So getting to the self-censorship, I think, Emily, I mean, this is where we bonded, you and I, <laughs> when we met, was we would both be the ones to say the unpopular things in the mm -hmm. room. It's like, oh, yeah, you're mm -hmm. one of those people. Um, and I think... If I think I was one of Meg's first students at Marlboro. Yeah, I think we should name that on the radio. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, and I think, Emily, you're absolutely right. When you take, when you risk making a statement and say, this is just what I'm seeing, I know my employer or my supervisor may not be happy I'm saying this, but I feel like this is important for the conversation. That gives everybody a little bit more um, courage. Because mm -hmm. so much of what we're dealing with is, and I, I don't want to minimize the structural difficulties we're having in this state around um, employment opportunities, good affordable housing, places to feel safe if you're in recovery. I mean, we've got some large, large issues. But a big, big one is fear, and that's when we actually have to address ourselves. Hmm. And um, this is um, my favorite political theorist, Spinoza, says the purpose of government is to reduce people's fears. And if you are increasing people's fears, whether it's because you've decided, okay, now we're going to have codes that um, make certain speech not um, legal, that can increase people's fears. If also people are feeling like when we had the swastikas on the, or the, uh, I forget how you say it in German, the, the, it was anti-Semitic slogans mm -hmm. on the sidewalk, mm -hmm. um, that, you, that there's a population that may start to feel afraid. So how can you deal with the fear mm -hmm. and really take the fear on and build strength and courage and not then say, I'm going to solve fear by criminalizing. So what is the answer to that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I really don't, because the way so much of this conversation has been framed lately is how do you prioritize one group's fear over another group's fear? Oh. And I don't, that's again sort of getting to this sort of scarcity of safety mm -hmm. that we've talked about a lot. And that's mm -hmm. a big thing in our community right now with downtown, you know, whose safety, whose security, mm -hmm. whose fear is the most valid or valued mm -hmm. when we craft codes and laws. And I know that's the wrong frame for the conversation, but I can't quite get to what the right frame is. And so, no, I think Tell just, me. No, I, I mean, I think you've just nailed it right there, mm -hmm. is that um, oftentimes then the fear gets compounded, whose fear is more important. And if you want a population to get really, really anxious, it'll be one group says, the people in power take those people's fears more seriously, and they're not taking my fears seriously. Mm -hmm. At that point, we have a whole currency of fear, and 
you know, God help us, basically, because the fear will just keep going. Spinoza says fear makes men insane. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. then how do you shift that? It's by increasing people's sense of capacity, of agency, and, and, and it's really, can we get in, so some of these efforts that are happening around, they may seem small, but uh, if you can get a group of people, as they did last week, I guess, picking up needles or earlier this week, mm-hmm. on the Whetstone Brook, um, at least that's okay, let us now do something together, mm-hmm. and then let's have a conversation. Sometimes when it just gets to the level of um, either abstract terms like drug users, merchants, homeless people compassion well and and fears get like i don't even know what's going on but if you can get people to actually do something together and then say okay what's the next step we can do keep using that word we knowing that there's not one answer let's hear all the different opinions let's not think that one group the merchants all thinks the same way or the homeless people all think the same way but to really draw out well what can we do so, so I think, oh, go oh, ahead, Emily. Is that okay? Because yeah. I'm realizing, so we've had this theme since we started this new round of the show on um, how we need new technologies of participation. And I, we don't mean technology in sort of the hard mm-hmm. iPod way. Do iPods even exist anymore? Mm-hmm. I mean it um, in terms of how we come together and how we have conversations, mm-hmm. because it seems like the old modes of, say, town meeting aren't quite doing it anymore. But I'm not, I'm still not sure what does. So when I have, you know, I have community conversations once a month as a legislator that I'm hosting, the same 12 people come. I really like those 12 people and I like talking to them, but I would like other people too. Mm -hmm. And I'm, so what do those new technologies look like that Mm -hmm. we can move into? How do we, you know, how do we stay civil and truly participate when, without Robert's Rules of Order? I don't know. What is. Mm, Right, right. So we do need some sort of framework. Uh, and Robert's rules can be really good at mm-hmm. your town meeting when you're trying to figure out how much money to put to the highway department for grading the roads. And we should name it. You are the second town meeting moderator that we have had on our show in <laughs> only a couple of weeks. So wow. welcome. Wow. Town moderators. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, Very special role. And, and, the, and the key piece for, for that is that it, it is encouraging different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And what what other kind of containers can we create where trying out different viewpoints is part of the game. Mm-hmm. And, and I know not everybody likes it when I talk about politics as a game, um, but I find that playfulness can d- be very helpful. One of the more exciting things uh, I did in the spring was through the Osher Lifelong Learning Series, and we were looking, it was called Good Clash, and how do you have good clash? Mm-hmm. At the end of the six-week series, we took the abortion debate, we had uh, 90 people at the New England Youth Theater oh. and come up with six or seven arguments in favor of the Roe v. Wade decision. And I tend to be very specific as opposed to abortion mm. because we want to bring it down to the more of the concrete. So mm-hmm. we had been looking at the Roe v. Wade decision and, and what sort of freedoms it allowed for. So s- six or seven arguments on in favor of Roe and then six or seven arguments against Roe. And we put them all out there, and then we did a little forum theater with four chairs up on the stage, and just randomly two people would argue against, and two people would argue forward. Then we stepped back. What do people think? Other people jumped in. Sometimes people switched uh, viewpoints. So we were wrestling with a really hard issue. And, you know, if Roe gets overturned, it'll go back to the states. 
And so we had better be able to talk to each other about this. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that there was a lot more diversity of opinion around abortion than when people are just with their, uh, what do they call it, soapbox and their bullhorn, they tend to make it sound like my way or the highway. Right. But most of these issues are far more complex. Well, I often, in my work as a journalist, I, I speak with a lot of organizations doing really good, hard work um, and who deserve more resource, resources and more respect. Uh, and yet they, they often fall back on if we're going to change the system, then censorship needs to be the t- a tool hmm. to, to change the system so that we can change the story and the narrative. Hmm. I think what I'm hearing, like going back to your example of folks picking up, up needles on the whetstone, I think, but what I'm hearing from you is if we want to change the narrative, we need more speech and more conversations rather than less mm-hmm. or, or very scripted. Right, right, exactly. And, and, and when they get scripted, they get so boring. You know, <laughs> so it's, boring. Isn't yeah. it true? So boring. Can't you tell, like, all of a sudden <laughs> oh. you feel like, wow. I've just lost the individuals in the room. We are now getting just into group talk. And We're on the talking points exactly. now. Exactly. And one side will say what it says, and mm-hmm. then the other side will say what it says. And it's, you can just watch the whole thing going. You feel like, okay, where's the stand-up comic when you need it to break it? <laughs> one of the things that's really interesting to me about the Vermont House versus the Vermont Senate is the Vermont House, because it's a much larger body, has the potential to be much more chaotic. And so for major issues... Each party tends to fairly carefully script what its plan is on the floor so as to keep their coalition intact. Hmm. Um, And then on sort of lesser issues that some people have strong feelings about, but the rest of the body perhaps is, or each party does not have a particular stance on, things can be much more fun, much more entertaining, and you tend to actually learn something on the floor. Whereas in the Senate... They really are each there as absolute individuals, even though they sometimes go with their party. But I think people change their mind on the floor of the Senate more often. I think conversations and resources are much more available. They will hand out new information to each other in the like Hmm. actually physically pieces of paper to each other while they're in the middle of debate. It's a much more dynamic operating environment because it's smaller. They know each other better. They've been able to build trust Mm -hmm. in each other's words in some ways. I mean, I'm sure that they don't really, you know, all love each other, but they've come, they've become accustomed to each other in a way that makes debate much more possible than it might in the much larger house. The, The fact that you just said people can change their mind in public that's amazing. That shows you, that's when you have a healthy, deliberative body. Mm-hmm. When somebody says, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of risk that democracy asks of us, to be that kind of courageous people. So what do we, Yeah. how the, do we, sorry. We're, I was just going to say, in the last about 10 minutes that we have, um, how do we make this really uh, tangible for our listeners so that they have some some tools or some frameworks. I want to use a really specific example. What, given all of that, what we know about what helps people change their opinion, about what it takes to build community, what do we do about the rise of hate speech in Vermont? Mm -hmm. Because we're getting a lot of pressure to legislate it. And what are the, and you don't have to go into like super specific examples, but what are you noticing in terms of uh, is it mainly on social media or is it um, 
in mails, uh, emails to people's inboxes where it's very specific, or, or what are the? Is, do you have a pattern or? I I think I've heard all of it. I've mm-hmm. heard um, on social media. I've heard specific targeting. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard about people being shouted down at meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we also, you know, more of what we've seen sort of spray painted on the side of synagogues or mm-hmm. whatever that is. Right, right. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it makes sense that when people want you to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, my guess is there are already crimes on the books to deal with a lot of this. Mm -hmm. So when sometimes people say they want you to do something about it as if there aren't existing laws. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I I guess, you know, I I see so many times where a social movement decides we're going to solve this problem by adding this other other layer Mm -hmm. of either felony or misdemeanor to make this less attractive. And it can be the same people who say we need to do criminal justice reform. I know. And it's so one of one of my favorite things about Vermont is um, I, in some ways we don't have as much historical memory as we do. And because we're not as well resourced as some other states, we tend to just band-aid and duct tape new laws on top of yes. old laws without ever taking the time to peel back and see what is the old law that's just not being effective and we add so many new laws that no one actually even knows what the laws are. So, you know, we have this really cool building code, essentially, at this point, that if you have a single stall bathroom, it needs to be gender neutral. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of businesses in our town that don't do that. I doubt that most of them are purposely evading the law. Mm-hmm. I think most of them have no idea that there's a law. And mm-hmm. I think that's even true for breastfeeding accommodations mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other like really just sort of like nice, fairly easy mm-hmm. social protections for people. Right. And so those band-aids, they make me crazy. But I know the, like there really is, there's that impetus to do something when people ask you to do something. Right, right. And that's yeah. one of the things I think is particularly hard to be a state legislator in the state of Vermont because um, there's few people in the state and we all have access to our legislators. And when we're upset, we go to you and we say, you have to do something. Mm-hmm. And there's an element in that where it sets up a feedback cycle that may be moving a little too quickly sometimes um, where if people feel like, well, it's a little harder to get in touch with my representative, then maybe I'll, we'll have to come up with a solution. Maybe we'll have to have a town forum. Maybe we'll have to build um, coalitions with different religious leaders just to address this issue in a more collaborative way. I think there's ways to solve many of these problems that could either use whether it's a community justice center or um, faith groups. So there's a lot of ways where people can come together and actually look at this. Uh, We may not have time, but forum theater and legislative theater can be a way to take a problem, turn it into something that everyone can observe, and then can react to it in different ways and jump in. So that's uh, Augusto Boal from Brazil has come up with some amazing technologies which are theatrical, playful, and look at a hard issue and then consider it from a variety of viewpoints. Mm -hmm. Well, and we may want to start too when we hear something we don't like, if it's safe for us, instead of saying to someone don't say that maybe we need to start asking why why are you saying that that's right 
Oh, it is so hard to ask why without judgment in your voice. Mm. Curiosity. Or what's up with that? Oh, mm. curiosity. Is so hard. Yes. <laughs> when right. you're... Right. Especially if you're afraid. I yeah. mean... If you're, afra- if you're stressed in any way. Yeah. Right? And, and yet, if you can become curious, then your fear will go down. Yes. So curiosity and role-playing curiosity mm-hmm. can be a way to diminish fear a little bit. Because, mm-hmm. boy, when we get afraid, our brains just keep going with... Somebody has to do something. I'm lizard, not lizard brains kick yeah. in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we have just a few minutes left, uh, Meg. Anything you wanted to add? Wish we had asked. What you think is really key for our community to understand around free speech, hate speech, any of these kind of issues? Um, that's a great question, and and maybe just one thing because we've had two conversations here, and one is about constitutional law, and mm-hmm. and which is about the structure of government and how um, there are these freedoms that we protect and take very seriously, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, the history of this country is that we knew what an inquisitorial court was like and did not want that. And then we had another just conversation about criminal law. Mm-hmm. And these two laws, I mean, we have a very complex system. You can pretty much find what you want at any time. Um, <laughs> and, and one is going to be expansive and about our potential and where we might go as members of a public, a polity together. Mm-hmm. And the other is about how we're going to punish people who don't um, make us feel safe. And that is where we legislate morality, is in those criminal laws. Thank you. And that's mm-hmm. a problem, I think. Yes. Yeah, I think if we want to take the morality piece, um, um, I'll go back to Spinoza again, who was a heretic, ex, uh, excommunicated by the Amsterdam Jewish community for saying what he thought. So he was always speaking truth. Um, and uh, his point of love is, I mean, this is one of these classic things. If you can get people to feel love of self, they'll feel less afraid. And that's a little bit different than being tolerant to the other. Mm-hmm. It's much more about built self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And the, some of the people who are engaged in hate speech right now, you know, our motorcycle gang, perhaps, uh, whatever, who... Uh, is wanting to take matters into their own hands, is to have a conversation about that why question and to try and figure out, so why are you not feeling good self-esteem right now that is making you feel like you want to um, put up hateful messages? Thanks. Thank you so much, Meg. You're it's really wonderful having you on the show today. If people uh, want to learn more about this issue, mm-hmm. is there a way they can either reach out to you or are there books, resources, websites you would recommend? Um, the Augusto Boal, he wrote something called Theater of the Oppressed. Um, and I'm pretty much making this my post-retirement mission is to go out and talk about all these things. Uh, so you can reach me at megmott at marlboro.edu. And the Debating Our Rights series, which is getting at a lot of this, um, we'll be looking at juries and the lack of juries um, next Wednesday at the Brattleboro Library at 7 p.m., Sixth Amendment. Fantastic. Emily, if people have questions for you. Emily Kornheiser at gmail.com, emilykornheiser.org. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram or walking down the street anytime. Happy to have a conversation. And I'm your host, Olga Peters, and you can always drop me a line at the Vermontitude SoundCloud page or the Vermontitude Facebook page. And of course, you can always reach me at the Commons. All our contact information is on page two of the newspaper. 
Thank you so much for joining us. This conversation will be podcasted and online later today. And next week, we will be back with more. I think we'll be talking about public space. We are talking about public space next week, and I can't wait. I'm hoping to really dig in on bathrooms. Yes. Well, stay tuned, folks. Have a great weekend. If you're in town in Brattleboro, enjoy Gallery Walk, and see you on Friday. See you on the ring.